fills us. We thank you that you've given Christ, that we may be redeemed, that we have been secured to be able to experience that calm when we reach your presence. And that calm will be so much sweeter for the sorrows that we face in this world. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that strength to look forward as we go through these storms, that you would, in our hearts, make known to us how steady and sure an anchor Christ is. I pray, Lord, that as we learn from your word today, that that would be reverberating in our minds, that we would look at scriptures and understand the person of Christ and who he is to us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through Pastor Patrick as he preaches your word. We thank you for this time and your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. What a privilege it is to be together again on the Lord's Day. What a, an immense pleasure to open the Word of God together. It is officially uh, the holidays. We are in this period known as the holidays. It's a very weird period that kind of gets started when Halloween rolls around. That's when everyone either gets excited for Halloween or gets angry about it. And, uh, and then after that, Thanksgiving comes, and then uh, after that, uh, Christmas comes. And Thanksgiving ends up just kind of being totally lost between Halloween and Christmas. Uh, we don't really uh, get to, to meditate on it, get to dwell on it. Uh, we're so excited about Christmas. I'm so excited about Christmas. 26 more days, and then it's Christmas. So I can't wait for Christmas. Uh, we love it. But because of that, uh, as I read somewhere, Thanksgiving is kind of like John the Baptist, where it's the forerunner of something greater to come. And so we just kind of lose sight of why we should be thankful. And so today, I just want to remain for one more Sunday in kind of that spirit of Thanksgiving. I want to, before we turn our attention to Christmas, which we will for the month of December, we're just going to look at Christmas the entire month. I want to just remain in this kind of spirit and, and meditation of Thanksgiving. I don't know if you do this with your family at the Thanksgiving dinner table. You go around and you say what you're thankful for, right? Uh, I, I don't know what you said that you're thankful for. My guess is that very few, if any, said that they're most thankful for this last year and specifically the trials and the suffering and the pain and the sorrow that came from this last year. If I were to take just a poll of our church and ask the question, what trials have you gone through this year? What trials are you currently experiencing right now? How many different kinds of answers would we receive? We've all gone through trials. They're all different. They're all trials of different degrees, different severities. They're all suffering. They're all sorrowful. Just think for yourself, the top three trials in your own life right now. Maybe they're financial trials, maybe they're family trials, relational difficulties, health problems. We're a bunch of believers in this room, most of us, and yet our lives are filled with hardships, with suffering, with difficulty, and with sorrow. Now, if we were to ask the same question to people outside of this church building, if we were to ask non-believers. Think of the top three trials that you're experiencing right now. I don't think that their questions or their answers would be very different to the question. I don't think that they would give many different responses because most of the things that we face as believers are common to the general mankind. So my question is, as we think about trials, as we think about suffering, is there anything different about the way that Christians face their trials than how someone else outside of Christ would face theirs? 
We all face similar challenges and similar trials, but do we bear under them differently? Do we bear up under the weight of that trial and that pressure differently? And if so, how? And I think the answer is yes, we do deal differently as believers with our trials. But it's really one of the craziest answers given in the Bible. It's really one of the craziest responses. It's a response that is so familiar to us that we miss how absolutely ludicrous the answer is. And so this morning, I want to ask the question, how can we view our trials correctly and why do we view them appropriately? How do we view them and why do we view them that way? And I think that James will be our guide as we think through giving thanks for even the worst of times in our lives. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's pray together. Father, these are familiar words to many of us, if not all of us. Many have studied these verses, many have memorized these verses, many could probably even preach these verses. And God, familiarity does breed contempt, and we begin to think that we have it all figured out. And I love this book because it's practical, it's applicable, it's relevant. And even though we might know the truth, we are going to be called today to live differently according to that truth that we know. It's the living out of the truth, not the knowing. We know this truth, but it's the living out of this truth. It's where the rubber meets the road. And so, Father, we come before you a grateful people that you have given us your word. You have spoken to us in your inerrant, infallible, inspired word. We know exactly what it is that you would have us do today. And yet it's impossible. We cannot see what we're supposed to see apart from your spirit. We cannot do what we're supposed to do apart from your spirit energizing us to do the work 
of walking righteously before you. And Father, I know that these issues are not alien or foreign to us. Even just this last year, we look back at this last year and we think of the sorrow, the tears that we've cried, the trials that we've gone through, and all of the trials are relative to each person. No trial is bigger or worse as we're going through it. It all hurts. It's all painful. But Father, you have promised in this verse and so many others in the Bible that no pain is ever wasted. So be our guide this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, to see clearly and to live differently according to these precious words that we read today. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. This whole book is written by James, the brother of Jesus. You remember Matthew chapter 13, Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. And we also know that those brothers and sisters did not believe in Jesus until he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7 say that uh, Jesus appeared to James specifically, to him directly, and after appearing to him as the resurrected Christ, James believed. But before that, James did not believe. He was doubter. He was a doubter. He was doubting. He was not believing in his Savior, Jesus Christ, who also happened to be his half-brother. And if I'm James and I'm writing to the church to have the church listen to me and understand what I'm about to say, I would say, hey, my name is James. You'll remember me because my half-brother is Jesus. But that's not how James begins. He says, I am James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls his half-brother his master and Lord. And he says, I'm his slave. That never happens with brothers. My two sons, if I ever saw one of my sons say to the other, you know what, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, you are my Messiah, and I submit myself as my slave to you, I would say, wake me up, because I am in a very strange dream, and this is clearly weird. This is not normal. You don't see this kind of behavior unless something radical happens, and something radical had happened. Jesus had died on a cross, had been buried for three days, rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering hell itself. And so the resurrection changed everything for James. So he says, I am a slave of God. That's my identity, not half-brother of Jesus, but slave of Jesus, my Savior. He's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. These are Jewish Christians who are dispersed because of persecution. And so he's going to write an intensely practical book in the midst of persecution. He's going to start off by saying, as you're being persecuted, as you're suffering, as you're going through trials, let me help you, let me encourage you, and let me give you practical guidance and commands. There are 54 imperatives in the book of James, the 54 commands, more commands per word in the book of James than in any other New Testament book. It's insanely practical, and practicality is where the rubber meets the road of Christianity. That's what we need. We don't need more cerebral knowledge. We need more practical living. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said the soul of religion is the practical part of it. That's the soul of religion, the practice of it. John Wesley, author of many hymns, said the problem of all problems is getting Christianity into practice. (laughs) That's the problem of all problems is practicing Christianity. So this morning, I want to practice Christianity. I want to practice it 
in the realm of giving thanks for trials. There are three specific truths that every believer can know and can hold dear when they're facing trials and difficulties. So three truths for every believer facing trials and suffering. Truth number one, believers know that trials are inevitable. Believers know that trials are inevitable. James writes, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if you encounter them, as if there's a potential chance that you won't encounter them. No, it's when. Trials are the norm. They will come. There's no way you get out of it. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said it himself. In this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trials in this world. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow because each day has enough cares of its own. You're going to go through cares every day, trials and troubles and sufferings every day. Acts chapter, four, Acts chapter 14, rather, verse 22, Paul said to the uh, church, through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. If you want to get to heaven, you're going to have to get there on a road filled with sorrow, suffering, trials, and tribulation. Believers know that they're inevitable. They will come. Consider all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. That word for trials, it's actually the, the word where we get our word pirate. It's a, it's a Greek word where we get our word pirate. It's something that steals. It's something that takes away. It's an attack. A trial rushes in and attacks whatever it is that you love, something precious to you that you're holding on to, that you're clinging to. A trial rushes in and attacks it. Trials very simply could be defined as when you want something that you're not getting, or when you're getting something that you're not wanting. That's a trial. And there's all kinds of trials. So not only when you encounter trials, it's going to happen, and not only will it happen to believers, my brother and my brothers, my brothers and sisters, believers, you're going to encounter trials. But there are various trials. I love that word. The, the Greek word for various, is, it's where we get the word polka dot from. It, it literally could be translated multicolored, various colors. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter multicolored trials, various colors of all different shapes and sizes. Alex Motier says, James is nothing if not realistic because life is a tale of various trials. We know this to be true. We could spend the rest of our morning going row by row, just sharing our trials. What is it that you're going through right now that's causing you grief, that's causing you pain, that's causing you anxiety, that's hurting your heart? The beauty of a small church is that I can look around and I see your faces and I've been praying for you. I know almost every trial, at least that you've told me, I know trials for all of you. I know that there's trials that you haven't told me or others that you are just praying to the Lord about. But the beauty of a small church is we can look around. We know the trials we're going through. We're bearing up under those trials together. We're lifting our brothers and sisters up in prayer. So truth number one is that every believer can know uh, the, the sad but realistic truth that trials are inevitable. We live in a fallen world. Trials are inevitable. So the question is, what do we do when we meet them? What do we do when we meet trials? And I would expect, if I'm writing the Bible, I would expect to see something to the effect of look for the silver lining. Make the most of it. 
grin and bear it. Hang on for dear life and you'll get out of it. But truth number two shows us that's not the answer to what we are to do when we meet trials. Truth number two, believers can have the right response to trials. Believers not only know that trials are going to happen, they're expected, they are going to happen, they're inevitable. But number two, believers can have the right response to them. As they come, believers can respond rightly, correctly, and appropriately. That means there is a right response to trials. And you can see it there in verse two. Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. And again, this loses its meaning. This phrase loses its meaning on us due to its familiarity. But look at this verse as if you were reading it for the very first time as a Jewish believer dispersed because of the persecution going on by Rome as you're living in first century Israel being dispersed because of the persecution. You love Jesus. You're hanging on to Jesus. You get a letter from James. Your pastor shows up at church, opens the letter, says, James, the half-brother of Jesus, has given us a message about the persecution we're going through. You're expecting to hear, hang on just a little while longer. Don't worry. Life is painful, but glory is going to be amazing. In the meantime, grin and bear it. In the meantime, hang on. But what does James say? Consider it all joy. The persecution you're going through, consider joy. I'm sure somebody in that first congregation that got this letter said, are you sure you got the right letter? Are you sure that's really James, the half-brother of Jesus? Are you sure that's what it says? Maybe it's a different word. Consider it all difficult as you go through trials. Joy? We grow so accustomed to this verse that we lose that first reaction. This is nuts. This is insanity. As you go through trials and suffering that are attacking and stealing things away from you, you're supposed to consider it joyful. You're supposed to rejoice. You're supposed to give thanks and be grateful. If I were writing it, I would say, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you escape various trials, when you're finally out of them, when you're finally done with the trial, you can rejoice and be happy. But James says, hey, when it meets you, when it shakes your hand and says, I'm going to be here for a while and I might not have an expiration date, we're supposed to say, awesome. I rejoice. Craig Blomberg in his commentary on this epistle says, frankly, many of us would prefer that this passage were not in the Bible, but it may also be one of the most profound and crucial for truly mature Christian living. Dan McCartney in his commentary says, to count testing as a joy is a truly radical proposal. How can a trial be regarded as joyful? How can it be regarded as altogether or all joyful? Notice he says that. Consider it all joy, the fullness of joy, the fullest of all joys as you meet the trial. What's the right response? It's to consider it joy. That word consider, very technical term. It's a financial term. It's an accounting term. It's calculating. It's considering. It's a call to theological reflection, to assess a trial from a biblical perspective rather than emotional perspective. It's thinking about the trial, not feeling about the trial. This word, you could translate it this way. You need to wrestle your heart into rejoicing because your heart's not going to want to rejoice, but you need to wrestle it with the theology of your mind that you learn from the scriptures that you can consider or count it all joy. When you get into a trial, 
What do you typically go to? Is it joy? I don't. That's not my first reaction. First reaction is complaining. Second reaction is self-pity. My life is just full of complaining and self-pity. Why is this happening to me? And woe is me, right? How could this be going on? I don't like this at all. This is ridiculous. And look at everyone else's life. It's amazing, but mine. Everyone else is going to Disneyland, and I'm not. That's where I tend to go, complaining, self-pity. I don't typically go. I mean, I, in my flesh, I never go here. Just considering it all joy. That's a spiritual response. I would say that it's very difficult to respond this way, but the, the reality is it's impossible to respond this way. It's impossible to respond with joy when you meet a trial unless you're walking by the Spirit. This is a supernatural response. Consider it all joy. I love that little word, it. Again, Alex Motier in his commentary on James says, that small word, it, contains the whole of life. It sums up its tiny compass, every one of the, in its tiny compass, every one of the various trials which present the present may contain, which the future might bring, or which the past may keep stored in your memory. They are all here in this one word. There is no trial, no great calamity, or no small pressure, no overwhelming sorrow, or small rub of life outside of the plan of God. For the Christian, trials don't exist outside the plan of God for our lives. They're included in that small word, it. Consider it, whatever you're going through, all joy. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that you don't have sorrow. This does not mean that you don't cry, that you're not filled with grief and sadness. Just mark down 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, Paul says. So there is a way to rejoice with tears in your eyes. This command to consider it all joy is not a command to banish all sorrow. We can be sad, but still have joy in the knowledge that our God is in control. We can have a peace that surpasses all understanding because we have a God who is in control. So therefore, joy is not the absence of trials. Joy is the presence of God inside of your trials. So we know trials are going to come. That's not the question. The question is, how do we respond to them? And how you respond to the trials that you face will determine whether or not you experience the divinely intended purpose of that trial. I hear a lot of people say that trials produce maturity. Trials produce maturity. They're good because they produce maturity. That's not technically accurate. Trials don't produce maturity. They can, but they can also destroy you if you don't respond well. It's all about your response to the trial. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person. It's not like every trial you go through will just grow your faith and grow your maturity. If you respond negatively to that trial, if you do not respond appropriately to that trial, if you don't obey the Lord in that trial, you will walk out more immature than you did as you entered it. This is the main difference that I've seen in my years of pastoral ministry. It's not people's knowledge about what's going on in the trial. It's people's response to the trial. It's all about what we do with the knowledge that we have. We use this analogy with regard to the gospel, right? We've talked before about the, uh, the airplane and the parachute, right? You can know 
As your airplane is going down, you can know that the parachute can save your life. You can put the parachute on your back, and you can know intellectually that if you pull the ripcord, you're going to be safe. You can know those things, but it's not until you put it into practice and actually pull that ripcord and trust that parachute to save your life, you're not going to be saved. Just knowing, holding onto that parachute, jumping out of the plane and saying, I know this thing can save me, that's not going to save you. The same thing is true with trials. Knowing the truth about the trials, about what God's doing in the trial, about how you're supposed to respond in the trial, knowing the truth about it. It's like you're holding on to that trial going, I know what this is all about. I know what, what God gave this to me for. I know what this is about. But knowing is not enough. It's a biblical response to the knowledge that you have. You have to pull that ripcord and say, now I'm going to live differently because of the knowledge that I have. That's the difference between living life as a mature believer and living life as an immature believer. I love the great theologian John Wayne. He said, life is tough, but it's tougher if you're stupid. <laughs> I love that. Life is tough. Trials are tough, but they're tougher if you're stupid. And I don't want us to walk through the trials of life foolishly thinking that just knowing is enough. There is an appropriate response, and that response is to count it or consider it all joy. Truth number one, believers know that trials are going to come. They're inevitable. They're expected. Truth number two, we can know as believers that there is a right response. There is an appropriate response, and we can have it. God is never going to give us an, a command that we can't live out according to his grace living within us. That leads us to number three. Believers, this is truth number three, Believers can respond with joy because we know that every trial has a purpose. Believers can respond with joy. Believers can do what point number two, truth number two says. We can respond with joy because we know that every trial has a purpose. This is verses three and four. So we consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? knowing, verse 3, this is a participle that modifies the main verb. The main verb is consider. You are to count it all joy. The participle is how do we do that? Knowing is how we consider. Knowing is how we count it joy. We count it joy because we know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We can respond with joy because we know that God is at work in our lives. No pain is ever wasted. Or as Elizabeth Elliot would say, suffering is never for nothing. You can be certain that every trial you meet with comes with a purpose. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We need to know this. We need to know this deep down in our souls. And we need to be reminded of it this morning because the first casualty of any trial is the death of a biblical perspective of that trial. That's the first casualty. The trial comes, and the biblical perspective of knowing God's doing something in this, that's the first thing that tends to leave. Mark Dever says it this way, embracing trials doesn't mean that we are to pretend that they're not trials. It simply means that we are not to let our reactions to them be determined by how they first feel to us. They need to be governed by what we know. And what do we know? We know that the trials that we go through, the testing of our faith, produces something. It's accomplishing something. 
Turn back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul the Apostle would agree with James when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Momentary light affliction. That's another one that I would say, uh, Brother Paul, momentary affliction? This isn't momentary. Light, you don't know the trials we're going through. You don't know the suffering. This is a lifelong trial. It's not momentary. It's not light. And Paul would say, yes, in the moment, in the temporal time and space, that's how it feels. But in light of eternity and the weight of glory that you're going to receive, it is momentary and it is light. John Piper, in commenting on this passage, says, Not only is all your affliction momentary, and not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. All of your affliction is totally meaningful. By the way, before I continue that quote, this is one of the ways that I share the gospel with people. You know Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you are not a believer, that promise is not yours. You have no idea if the pain you're going through is going to be wasted. It probably will be. So sometimes I share as as non-believers that I know personally are going through grief, I say, you know what? If you want this pain that you're going through to have purpose and meaning, you need to come to Christ. Because apart from coming to Christ, this momentary light affliction for me is actually for you everything that you're going to experience in this life. It's not momentary. It's forever. And it's not light. It's an incredibly heavy burden. If you want that lifted off of you, you need to come to Christ. I use these verses as I share the gospel. Now, back to the quote. Every millisecond, John Piper continues, every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or from fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you will get because of it. Doesn't matter if it's cancer or criticism. Doesn't matter if it's slander or sickness. None of it was meaningless. It's doing something. Of course, you can't see what it's doing, and that's part of the problem. We don't know what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your child dies, when you have cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes your best friend out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not lose heart. Take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new, you are cared for, and no trial is ever wasted. No trial is ever wasted. 
you go back to the book of James, James agrees with that. That's why he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces. Every test produces something. It produces something. And what James does is what theologians would call a chain argument. These are linked together. Testing produces endurance. Endurance produces a perfect result that will make you mature and complete, lacking in nothing. They all go together. So if you want the end of this chain argument, you've got to start from the beginning, and you can't take any link out of this chain argument. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. My Bible says endurance. Your Bible might say steadfastness. This is exactly what the trial is producing. It's producing steadfastness. And steadfastness is such an important word for us. The word steadfastness means to remain under something, to remain under it for a long time. Not to escape, not to run away, but to stay under it. Again, that's not my first inclination when I'm in the midst of a trial. My prayer after I am done complaining and involved in self-pity, my prayer is, God, get this trial away. And then my next response is, how do I hurry up and get this trial out of here? What can I do practically to get rid of this trial? Is there a way that I can get out of this? Because I definitely don't want to remain under it. And yet, if I get out of that trial, if I short-circuit that trial, I won't learn what God wants me to learn, and I will walk away more immature because of it. That's why James says, and let, in verse 4, let steadfastness have its perfect result. So you know the testing of your faith produces something. What does it produce? Steadfastness, the ability to stay under that trial and not escape. But if you escape, if you get out of that actively on your own, you're not going to learn what you're supposed to learn. You're not going to live the way you're supposed to live. You're not going to grow the way you're supposed to grow. And that's why James says, let, allow it to happen. Stay under this trial. Allow it to hurt. Those of you who have ever worked out in a gym or with weights, you know what this is like. You begin to feel the burn of whatever muscle group you're working, and you just want it to stop. I mean, who enjoys that feeling? Weird people enjoy that feeling. And they just love, like, feeling the burn and, ah, oh, this feels amazing. I just, no, I want a massage now. Please, give me a spa, give me a jacuzzi. I just want a, a massage. But if you, every time you feel that burn in your muscle, if you're working out and you feel that burn, you instantly go, I'm done. You're never going to grow any muscle. You're never going to grow any strength. You're never going to grow any sense of maturity in those muscles. That's why good personal trainers, once you begin to feel that burn, they'll say, hold it, or give me three more, or give me five more, because that's where you're producing the, the muscle. That's where you're producing the growth. So James says, don't leave, don't stop. I just have to stop right here and ask you, what trial are you going through right now that you're thinking of? God's putting it on your heart. The Holy Spirit is bringing this to your mind, and you're thinking right now, I want to get out of that trial, and I know a way to get out of it. I, I don't want to be here anymore. God in his grace has you here this morning to plead with you, don't sh short circuit that trial. It's teaching you something. That's why James says, let endurance have its perfect result. If you don't let, if you don't stay and remain under that trial to grow, if you leave and you don't let it do that, then it won't have a perfect result. It will be imperfect. 
and you will not be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James uses that word complete more than any other author of the New Testament. That's the goal. You want to be a mature Christian? Stay in the trial and learn from the trial. Bear up under the trial. If you do that, you're going to see spiritual maturity sprouting all over your life. And if you go down to verse 12, verse 12 kind of bookends this section. James says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. That's, again, a beautiful bookend. James says to you, if you're going through a trial, consider it joy. Be happy in the midst of it. And then at the end, how blessed. That that word is uh, living an enviable life where everyone looking on would see your life and say, that's the kind of life I want to have. You're happy. You're filled with joy. Why? Because you've persevered under the trial. Because once you've been approved, once you've been found complete and perfected and mature through that trial, you will receive the crown of life. That word crown, we've come across this a number of times in our study through Revelation. It's either a diadem, that's the Greek word diadem would mean uh, a crown for a king, you get it as royalty, or a stephanos, a, a crown given to you as a victor of a competition. That's the word here. This is a stephanos. This is a crown given to you after you won something. It's a hard battle, it's a hard war, and you've won it. And you're given the crown of life by the Lord as he's promised to those who love him. It's all about, do you love Jesus? Because if you love your circumstances and being at peace and enjoying life more than you love God, you're going to say, I don't want the trial, I just want uh, no trial and peace and security and safety here in this life. But if you love Jesus more than you love the trial, you're going to say, Jesus, bring it on. Whatever it takes, bring it on because I want to love you more. I love how one commentator says it this way. No good checker player minds losing a piece as long as they're heading for the crown. Nobody minds losing a piece as long as they know this is going to get me to victory. Same thing for believers with trials. Nobody minds going through the trial knowing this is producing something that's going to give me the victory and bring it on. Alfred Plummer, who's an old Puritan pastor, said, this hard saying by James It's really a merciful one because it teaches us to endure the trials in a spirit that will make us feel them the least. We're thinking about something that we're going to gain through them. So the sorrow of that moment, though it's painful, we feel it the least because we know it's producing something for us. So if you want to benefit the most from the trial, you have to live this out. Let, allow endurance, allow allow steadfastness, remain in under that trial to have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Don't give up. There's a warning in verse 4. Don't give up, because if you give up, you're going to miss out on the benefits of maturity. Alex Motier, one more time, he says, James is bringing a word of caution, and here's why. A believer might endure for a while and then tire of enduring. In this case, the desired growth to maturity is halted midway. There has to be a persistency of enduring. Steadfastness must have its full effect. The road is therefore hard and long, and the task is unremitting. To endure the first onset of the startling unexpected trial, and to endure again while it persists, and then to go on enduring, we are called to persist and to live out endurance. But the hard road has a glorious destination for us too that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Every trial is refining your faith. Every trial is producing something. Don't shortchange the trial. Don't give up. There's grace for you today. There is not any grace. There's no grace given for your imagination. If you think, oh my word, this trial's going to last forever, and then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, you have no grace that's given to your imagination. You only have grace for reality. You also have no grace given for tomorrow. You only have grace given for today. So don't think about tomorrow. Think about right now. Think about this moment. So my question as you're thinking about this moment is, do you want to grow in godliness? Do you want to love Jesus more? If so, in trials, you'll be able to give thanks because you know they're producing something that's going to help you love Jesus more. If you don't want to love Jesus more, trials are miserable. And you just say, why? What's the purpose of this? If you're kicking against the plan that God has for you, life will not go well. It's like those, you know those spikes that they put in a driveway? It says, like, don't go this way. Big old red stop signs everywhere. Don't back up over this or don't drive. This is the exit. Don't go this way. Or this is the entrance. Don't go this way. If you drive over those spikes, you get massive punctures in your tire, have a very bad day. I don't know if anybody's done that before. It's like that. Don't go backwards over those spikes. Don't go in reverse. Go forward. Keep on pressing into it. Don't kick against God's plan or else your faith is going to be punctured. Go forward. Don't get out from under, but stay under and bear up well. What do you do when the weight of the trial is pummeling you? We tend to run away, but instead we need to bear up under it. Just take a deep breath in the midst of that trial. Plant your feet firmly in the grace that God has given to you and stand firm in the midst of it. James says, for believers, number one, we know Trials are going to come. They're inevitable. We know, number two, there is a, a right response. And we can have it. We can have the appropriate response. Because of, number three, truth number three, we know that every trial produces something. That's what we know. Notice what we don't know. We know every trial produces something. We don't know exactly the purpose for the trial. We don't know reasons for the trial. We don't always even know what God's doing in the trial. We know he's doing something, but we don't even know all the time what he's doing. Rarely do we know. This tells us that we don't need reasons in the midst of the trial. Why is God doing this? By the way, it really wouldn't even help us if we understood. I think Job is the perfect example. When Job finally gets a chance to talk to God, God, can you please give me an answer for why you're allowing these things to happen? You remember what God does? He says, let's go to the zoo. Let's look at some animals. Who made them? Did you, Job? And Job goes, no. God says, I made them. I have plans for them. I love that whole section. You kind of get lost in that section in Job. I love that section. Because God's like, who made this huge animal? Look at how massive it is. Could you have done that? No, I can't. Who made the, the process of giving birth? Could you have figured that out, Job? No. And then one of my personal favorites, who made the ostrich? Look at this stupid bird. Who made this stupid bird? Who made it to look stupid? Who made it to act really strange? I did. Could you be that creative, Job? Nope. Job gets it. The whole point is, God is telling Job, if I gave you reasons for why I'm allowing, what I'm allowing you to go through, for why I'm allowing it, if I give you reasons, your mind would explode because I have infinite reasons that you couldn't understand. 
We're not given reasons, ultimately. I think that's one of the beauty, beauties of heaven. Some people think that heaven's going to be boring. I don't think it is, and we're going to actually spend, once we get to the end of our study of Revelation, we're going to spend a, a sermon series looking at what the Bible says about heaven because I think it's drastically different than most people think about what heaven's going to be. Some people think we're going to get bored. Some people think it's going to be too long. I think we need eternity for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons why I think we need eternity is we are going to be able to unravel, I personally believe, at the feet of Jesus himself explaining these things to us, we're going to be able to unravel the purpose and the reasons and the motivations and the causality and everything that came from every trial that we go through. Just think about it. God, why did you let that happen? What is it? Fill in the blank in your mind. God, why did you let that happen? might take 1,200 years to answer that question. Because God's going to have to go, okay, when this happened, these people heard the gospel. They shared the gospel with their kids. Their kids got saved and shared the gospel with this person over here and this person over here and this person over here and this happened and this church group and this happened over here. You're going to need eternity to answer all these questions. It's producing something. But the ultimate comfort for us is not an explanation of the cause. The ultimate comfort for us is not an explanation of what's actually going on, what God is producing. We know he's giving us maturity. And we know that he's giving us himself. It's a revelation of him that is our comfort. I remember preaching on just kind of what trials are and suffering when uh, after, it was a few months after my son had been in the hospital having open heart surgery a few days after he was born, and just talking through trials, and I mean, we're still learning that. I, I personally don't think that that was suffering what we went through. I think it was a trial. I don't think it was suffering. Uh, many of you have gone through far worse suffering than what Tyler went through and what we went through watching him go through it. But the two things that just stood out to me is I just kind of meditated on it. My wife and I talked about it, and I just, you, you as a church, some of you weren't there uh, at our church yet, but many of you were, and, and you were there with us, walking us through that trial practically helping us, financially helping us, uh, holding their hand, praying for us in so many different ways. And so there was a kind of a meditation after that as we were studying the Gospel of John. We got to John chapter 9, which is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Why is this man born blind? And Jesus takes the entire chapter to tell you what the purpose of that suffering is. And I, I just kind of summed it all up by saying, I have two things that I always rely on in the midst of trials. Number one, I have a ballast in my boat, that weight that holds me down in the midst of trials. And it's who God is and what he's doing. God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely always good. Who he is, he's always sovereign, he's always good. And what he's doing. He's always working for my greatest joy. He's always working for his greatest glory. He's always working for my greatest good. I have the entirety of the Bible to tell this to me. So the ballast, the weight in my boat that holds me down in the midst of suffering is who God is and what he's doing. And the anchor that holds me in every single moment is the cross. We can go to the cross. We can look at the cross. There's never a doubt that Jesus loves you. Every trial that he gives you is not in spite of his love. It's an expression of his love. And it will produce in us Christ-likeness and maturity in him. Well, the rest of the verses... Uh, that I wanted to get through, and I have several notes on them. You can see they're all, they are connected. If you're in the midst of a trial and you're struggling with wisdom, ask God. He gives generously. He, he's uh, not um, 
holding it all in. He's not uh, unwilling to give and take care of you. He's not stingy with love and grace. He's generous with it. He'll give it to all without reproach. Uh, you must ask in faith without doubting. Some people say, oh, I, I doubt. It's okay. That's not what James is saying here. It's the idea of uh, the progression of your life is one of doubting, persistently doubting. Paul says that Abraham had a faith uh, with no doubting inside of it. So time out. Abraham totally doubted. <laughs> That's why we have Ishmael, right? Because he doubts. So there's a way to describe your life as doubt-free. Even though you're struggling with doubt, the majority, the totality, the expression of your life is one of faith. He talks about the trials that we go through with humble means and with, with rich means. And then he, he sums it all up in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once, he, once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We have that beautiful illustration of God not having any variation, no shifting shadow in verses uh, 17 and 18. We can plant our feet in him because he never changes and he never moves. So much more that could be said, but let's wrap up our time with some application here. Truth number one, trials are inevitable. Truth number one, trials are inevitable. They are not electives for the believer. They are required courses that we must go through. So just right off the bat, can I encourage us? I'm going to use a guy that's not a Christian. You know Plato. Not like the kid Plato thing, but the philosopher Plato. He says this, be kinder than necessary to everyone you meet because everyone you meet is fighting a greater battle than you know. I just think that that is so helpful, and I could go to Scripture to prove that. You know, non-believers, broken clock, can get it right every once in a while, and I think he got it right there. So if we know trials are inevitable, even with a church as small as our church, we know that we're all going through some trials. So be gracious with each other. Be kind. Extend the grace of God. People are hurting way more than they let on, way more than they tell you. So give a handshake, give a hug, sit with somebody, even today, and say, what trial are you going through? I want to pray for you right now. I'm going to go before the throne right now on your behalf. Number two, truth number two, we can respond appropriately to trials. We don't get to choose our trials, but we get to choose how we respond to them. And my question to you is, how are you currently responding to whatever trial you're going through? God's allowed you a gracious gift. Philippians chapter 1, Paul calls suffering a gift given to believers. How are you responding? Putting your faith to work in your life has more to do with how you respond to trouble than probably anything else. So how are you responding? Talk to somebody today. Say, here's the trial. Here's my flesh. Here's what the Spirit wants me to do. Help me. Number three. We have reason to be able to rejoice. We have reason to rejoice. We have reason to be able to consider it all joy because we know what suffering is producing. We know what trials are producing. We can give thanks for the trials because we know they're producing something. Satan wants trials to defeat us, but a Savior wants trials to develop us. You know that C.S. Lewis quote, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is God trying to get your attention with the megaphone of pain in your life today? 
Is he drawing you to himself? Is he calling you to see that the world doesn't satisfy? He's taking things away to say, will you be satisfied in me alone? Or do you need something else? Can you trust the process that God has in mind? I think of moments when I'm working on something at my house and my kids are all over me watching me work on it and I love it, but I'm also incredibly impatient. My kids will say, oh, that's not where that goes. Oh, dad, you're going to break that. Oh, that's not what's supposed to happen. And I just say, hey, just trust me. I, I, I know what I'm doing here. Just yesterday, I mean, this is a daily example. For those of you who have kids, you know this. Just yesterday was a fire truck that needed new batteries, and Ethan put them all in because I think he's very mechanical and engineering in certain aspects of his brain. Tyler for sure is. And so they worked on this together, and they put them all in facing the same direction. Four AA batteries, and you know they're supposed to be staggered going back and forth, and you can look at the little diagram and read the instructions, but you know, little boys are beyond instructions. They just they know it intuitively. So they open it up, they put the batteries in, doesn't work. Dad, why isn't this working? So I take the batteries out. That's not how it goes. I know. Just trust me. Hang on. I know it needs batteries. I start putting them in. Back. I look at the picture. I start putting them in. That's not. They all need to face the one way. Dad, you're doing it the wrong way. Just trust me. <laughs> I put the thing on, and their eyes just like lit up. You fixed it. Hooray. No thanks. No, well done, Dad. No, we should have trust you. No, you've never been untrustworthy to us. None of that. <laughs> As believers, our Father is fixing something in our life. He's doing something in our life. And we look over his shoulder constantly going, that's not right. That's not how you do it. I know me. That's not how you fix me. This is what you're supposed to do. And God in his great graciousness, not being like an earthly father like me, just a messed up human being, he says, will you trust me? I gave you the cross. I love you. And I know what I'm doing with you. Will you trust me? You can't have the joy and satisfaction in verse 2 without the submission of verse 1, being a slave of God. So I would plead with you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you are not a slave of Christ, you are living a life where every pain that you go through is pointless. And then you will die and spend eternity in the most painful place in all of the world experiencing the wrath of God against your sin. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to turn to Christ. And not only do you get the blessing of heaven and the blessing of being in the presence of Jesus forevermore, but you also get the joy of knowing that every pain you go through is never wasted. Have you submitted to Jesus Christ? Maybe you're a believer here this morning, and you have. You would say, I've submitted my life to him, and I would, I would say, praise the Lord, amen and amen, you're my brother and my sister, but I would ask you the next question. Are you submitting now? Or are you trying to get out of his obvious revealed will for your life? No one will ever receive wisdom from God unless they have, unless your, your only option is joyful, obedient submission to him. If you want wisdom and joy from the Lord, you're not going to get it unless you've submitted your life to him. Some of you might say, well, I, I struggle to trust Jesus. I don't know if I can. Does he have my best interest in mind? And I would just say, go to the cross. Jesus has your best interest in mind. For the joy set before him, knowing that he would win you to the Father, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. For the joy set before him, the cross and the suffering of the cross is the gateway to joy. So if that's the way it was for our Savior, that's the way it's going to be for us as believers. Trials that we go through are the gateway for joy. 
the very one whose pain I caused by my sin on the cross is the very one who says, I'm working now in your pain to bring you to glory. Richard Baxter says, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through himself. And he's with you every step of the way. So if you're walking in the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil because he is right next to you and he's producing something in the midst of the trial. The only question is, will you trust him? Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us. We thank you for your word that is so clear and it's so helpful and it guides us in our understanding. God, we are blown away by grace, a grace that enables us to do what is supernatural, to do what's impossible naturally, to consider trials as joyful. So Father, I just pray as we respond in song right now, you in your grace and kindness would enable us, even in these moments, to consider our trials as joy, to count them as joy, knowing that you're doing something, you're producing something, and you love us, and you are sovereign over us, working every single pain that we go through for our ultimate pleasure in Christ. God, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?